because he lives I can face tomorrow. I was down there getting my groove on. And that steel guitar, how about it? I said it at the last service, but I can't get enough of that. So my name is Ethan Broom. I serve here at Alice Drive as the middle school minister. Um, I know I'm short and I kind of blend in with them, but that's what I do here. Um, and it's been my honor to serve here alongside uh, the other staff members at Alice Drive. Our mission, our vision, our values that we have here, I'm in line with them. I love our mission that we exist to help as many people as possible. It's been an honor to work here. Um, and it's been an honor to be able to, to come up here and speak to you guys today and be able to share with you what God has placed on my heart. So if you will, we'll pray and then we'll dive right in. Dear Heavenly Father, come before you. Again, just I don't want this to be a transitional prayer, but I want every heart in this room to take something home with them today and take that next step. Or if they haven't taken uh, a step at all, to take their first step towards you. God, there is joy. And because you live, life is worth living. Because you live, we can face tomorrow. And there's beauty in the joy of the resurrection. So Lord, touch our hearts, touch our lives, and, and let the words of my mouth be acceptable uh, in your eyes. In your name I pray. Amen. So. I believe that your beliefs matter more today than you think. In fact, your beliefs matter a lot. It causes you to live a certain way. Your beliefs cause you to react and to live a certain way, like my belief that North Greenville University is the best university in the United States calls me to wear my shirt, North Greenville University shirt, as I preach to you guys today. So that is a small example of why belief matters, but I wanna go a little bit deeper and try to prove this point to you. Um, I was having a conversation with uh, the executive pastor here, Todd Fleming, and we got to talking about brand loyalty and truck loyalty and my generation, Gen Z, we're not really loyal to anything. Um, I know I'm that old, don't be shocked. Uh, but we're not really loyal to anything, any type of brand as much as the older generations are. Uh, but I was talking to uh, Pastor Todd about brand loyalty and trucks. So is anybody in here a Ford guy? Ford, trust Ford, drive a Ford? Doesn't necessarily have to be a truck. Okay, there's quite a few hands. All right, Ram, Dodge Ram. Okay, yeah, those are the people who are actually following Jesus, you know, taking their next step right there. Um, but all the other ones, you know, God's Motor Company, GMC, I had some guy argue with me. I don't really consider anything else to be a truck. So we're just going to stick to those two brands. And if I just offended you, then good, because you helped me prove the point that I want to make. Your beliefs matter. So I was talking to Pastor Todd, and he goes, you know, I was raised a certain way. I now drive a Ford. And I was like, yeah, I was raised a certain way. I now drive a Ram. I call it the GOAT, which is the greatest of all time in middle school terms. And so my truck is called the GOAT, and I love that thing, and I think Dodge Ram is the best. Well, Pastor Todd was, he didn't mean to rub it in my face. He didn't mean anything by it. But he said his friend owns a used car lot, and he buys Rams at a cheaper price and sells them at a cheaper price because nobody uh, wants them. And Fords, <laughs> Fords always sell at the top dollar. And I'm like, dude, you know, hands on my hips. I'm about to get crazy up in here. I'm mad. Like, you just offended me. But I didn't say anything like that. I was like, yeah, okay. You know, whatever you say. Um, but the truth is, is I would be lying if I say, said that it didn't make me mad. If brand loyalty or my belief in my truck being the best didn't offend me a little bit if you didn't believe the way I believe. And I know that's just a little point, but it caused me to react a certain way. And it made me think, man, because of my beliefs, everything I do and a lot of the things I do most require me to live and act and be a certain way. In fact, even to the smallest point of brushing your teeth. I tell my middle school boys, I say twice a day, you know, morning, night before you go to bed. And I don't think they even believe in a toothbrush because uh, I have to take a couple steps back. But 
The truth is, is when you first get out of bed, it causes you to wear a certain color, your belief that a certain color at a certain time of year, to brush your teeth, right? So all your beliefs, even from the moment you get out of bed, affect your life, and so they matter. Now, the series we've been in is called, Do You Believe? And we're seeking to answer this question, what must I believe to follow Jesus? And so the first sermon ever preached about Jesus was Peter's friend and disciple, or sorry, Jesus' friend and disciple, Peter, got my tongue tongue up there, <clears throat> lays out five, he laid out five essential beliefs about what you must believe in order to fully embrace Jesus and follow him. And the first one that we covered in the first week of this was that Jesus was sent by God, and that was proved by his miracles, his wonders, and his signs. The second essential belief is that the death of Jesus means that Jesus is the one perfect sacrifice that covers all the sins of the world. Which leads us to where we are today, and that's the third question. And the third question is, is do you believe in the resurrection? And so we're going to dive into two pieces of scripture, one in Acts 2 and one in Romans 10. But before we do, it's really important to understand the context of a passage. Context is key. Context is very important when studying scripture. And so before we dive into Acts 2, I want to talk about the context of Acts and what we're diving into here. And so to find the answer of what I must believe to follow Jesus, we go back to the very first sermon that was ever preached about him. And this was the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost, as said above, um, the day the Jesus movement started. So it was the day the church was born. Things are going. The movement started. Things are getting exciting. The church has taken off. And, and over these last couple weeks, and two more ahead of me, we're going to be talking about those five points that Peter makes in this sermon. And so we're on the third one, which is the resurrection. And to the non-believer in the room, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon at all or watching online. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on the resurrection at all. And to uh, encourage you, I would just ask that uh, and, and help you understand that your belief causes you to feel a certain way. And, and there is a certain joy that you can get in knowing that he lives and that he died for you. And so I encourage you just to tune in and listen today. To the believer in the room that just accepted Jesus as Lord, uh, your, your fire's bright, you're burning, you're following Jesus, you're taking your next step left and right. This is just going to be encouragement to you. Um, it's going to be fuel to your fire for Jesus. And, and if you're a seasoned believer or you've been a, a believer for quite some time, 10, 5, 12, 20 years, whatever you, however long you've believed in Jesus, uh, I, I think this is, this is what it did for me. I think that it just encouraged me in a simple reminder that I serve a risen Savior and I'm on the winning side. And I don't have to do anything because he did it all. And so we serve a risen Savior and because he lives, we can have joy. And it's encouraging to know that the gospel and the gospel alone is enough. And I think that is why the resurrection is so essential and that Peter, 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 Peter preaches it ASAP as soon as possible for middle school kids. All right, Acts 2, 24, let's dive right in. It said, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So I'm gonna break it up into two sections this verse, but, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. I want to focus a minute on that word, agony, and the idea that there is a weight of suffering, that suffering carries a burden, suffering carries a weight, and there is a weight in suffering, and that's what agony is saying. And so have you ever considered, it causes us to consider the question, the weight of suffering. 
What does that mean? What does the weight of my sin, what does the weight of suffering mean for me? What did it mean for Jesus? And so, have you ever considered the weight of your sin? And now when I ask a middle school boy that question, they're like, bro, what you mean? Lift, lift, lift weights, lift weight. What are you talking about? You even lift, uh, Jesus lift. What are we talking about here? What kind of weights are we talking? I'm not talking a physical weight. I'm saying that your sin actually carries a weight, a burden. And it can't just be measured in physical pounds. It, can, it does have a spiritual weight that is crushing. And so the most obvious weight of sin is punishment. We all know that the wages of sin is death. And so death is twofold. There's a physical death, but there's also a spiritual death, an immediate spiritual death. And that's when all sinners are separated from God. We turn our backs to God. We turn our eyes to something else. And so there is a spiritual darkness that takes place when you're separated from God. And Jesus experienced that in the agony um, while, while on the cross. And so what other weight does sin carry? Well, hop on the bus. We're going to school. Um, your sin actually carries, there's consequences for your sin. So there's guilt, uh, shame, regret. There's different sins that weigh down and cause your life and, and, and the weight on your shoulders to be a burden. And those consequences leads to maybe anxiety or broken relationships or, or things that can't necessarily be restored because they were broken long ago. Uh, there's, a, there's a certain weight that is on your shoulders because of the spiritual darkness and the sin that you're carrying in your life. And there, these consequences can be devastating to our lives at times. It can be uh, very frustrating, very uh, evil, and cause us to live life a certain way that's not healthy. Um, but the feeling of shame and guilt caused by sin, is, is, it's overwhelming at times. Sometimes people can bear it, think they can do it, think they have it all together. But the truth is, you know, sometimes we don't. And there's those times where we feel that we need to have that sin lifted off our shoulders. And so the agony that was experienced was Jesus dying our death. He died our death. He experienced um, and endured our condemnation. And he suffered our separation from God, that spiritual darkness. He carried our weight, the weight of the world on his shoulders. Just like we carry it for ourselves before we give our life to him. But going into the second part of Acts 2, 24, it says, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so, very simply put, um, it cannot be consistent with Scripture uh, if, if death were to hold him, if the grave were to confine him. It wouldn't, it wouldn't add up with everything that he said about himself. He said, I am the prince of life. He said that he has life in and of himself, and he had the power to lay down his life and to take it. He came also that through death he might destroy uh, the power of death, and that is the devil. And so that was his mission and purpose, was to gain victory and glorify God in defeating the grave, sin, and death. And so the second question that arises when I read that is, it says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Well, why is it not possible for death to hold Jesus? And, and that's interesting to me because... Just why in general was it not possible for the death to hold Jesus? And it's a really simple answer, short and sweet, but it's because there is a purity of the perfect life that Jesus lived. He lived a life and he didn't sin, not even once. He lived a life and he was perfect. He healed, he forgave, he restored. And to be as pure as he was, as perfect as he was, the grave literally couldn't hold him. He was so good. So let's go into Acts 2, verse 32. 
It says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. And so right here is where I'm going to lose most of my middle scores and where I lose them typically, but I got to throw out some facts about there is proof in the resurrection. There are six points that I'm going to make here, and that proves that the resurrection is real, that it's a real thing. It happened. It happened. And so if anybody's like, all right, prove it to me. Here's six points that immediately you can say and prove to them that the resurrection was real. First one is there are four ancient biographies of Jesus, and they were all written by eyewitnesses and based on eyewitness testimony. So there's these, the, the gospels, they're written, they line up, they're all talking about Jesus and the life he lived, but most significantly and the most important about those gospels and what we're mentioning right now is that at the end of them, Jesus died, and three days later, he rose from the dead. They all line up. They all go hand in hand. They make sense. They don't combat each other and cause disagreements and arguments. They all go hand in hand. They're historical stories about the life of Jesus, and that matters. That's significant that we still have that in writing even today. Number two, many of the principal eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus died because of their claim that Jesus was resurrected. Me personally, in my life, I don't know a single person that has died based off a set of beliefs or, or became a martyr for something that they believed so heavily in. Um, personally, I don't, but in stories and books I've read, I've understood, I've, I've, I've listened uh, to people who have based off a set of facts or beliefs. And so I think this is significant because there were men and women who died to prove that Jesus had resurrected. They're saying he did, I did, I did, I did. And, and there, there's no telling me that he didn't. I'm not taking back my word. This is the truth, and I want it to be known. And they died for that reason. Reason number two. Reason three, the eyewitness story told by John is very important. So I'm not, not just the gospel of John, even though it's my favorite book in Scripture. But John is writing a historical story, um, at the gospel of John, the book of John. And then he writes a symbol and metaphor, which is Revelation. And so you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, yeah, symbols. Uh, metaphor, the Bible's not real, what it says, it's just a symbol, it's just a metaphor, it's faked, made up stories, the well, etc., etc., etc. But the truth is, is that when you actually study scripture, when you look into it, it's kind of cool how it works out. There's historical stories, and then there's also poems, there's psalms, there's different things in different writings, and John has two different ones that explain two different sides, and it's really neat, and it proves the point um, that Jesus is resurrected, and it, it further proves that. Reason number four, the historical evidence shows that the grave was empty, the clothes were neatly left behind, the stone enclosing the tomb was rolled away, the body of Jesus was never found, and nobody claimed to have stolen the body. The, the grave was guarded by Roman soldiers, uh, but the presence of the grave clothes were really important here because the cloth that was inside the grave and left there after Jesus resurrected was very significant and very important. Not only when they stole bodies or things like that, they would take those clothes and, and that sense and stuff and use it to their own pleasure and or they would sell it for a profit because it was really valuable in that time. But the fact is, is it was left in the tomb. And so anybody, if they would have stolen the body, would have taken the clothes because it was just so, I mean, that stuff was so valuable and you could get, make a profit off that. But they left it there. It's left there in the tomb and Jesus has risen. Reason number five, and this one's my favorite. 
Uh, there were 11 recorded times, besides Paul, that Jesus appeared to people proving that he was resurrected. So not only were the appearances to men and women, uh, to children, but they were to individuals, couples, groups, and at least one crowd at one time. These appearances were inside and outside. They were in different locations at different times, different times of the day. And my favorite part about it is that he was physically touched, he was audibly heard, visually seen, and he even ate in the presence of witnesses. And so all the senses that you had to have to know something, believe something, he proved to the disciples there. But not only did he prove it to them, but what is neat is, is these disciples hung out with him before he uh, endured that suffering on the cross. And so they knew of him. They were friends with him. They went fishing with him. They were buddies. They probably drove their Dodge Rams together. They were buddies. Everything, they hung out together. And so when Jesus comes back, when he had risen, they realize, hey, this is our guy. Like, I, kn I know this man. It's not just some man that people are saying Jesus is risen. This is Jesus. He ate with us. He's talked to us. This is him. And so I find that fascinating because they didn't believe that he would raise from the dead, which boggles my brain because I'm like, you just saw him do these miracles and live this perfect life, and yet you don't believe he could raise from the dead. But he did. And so, and he proves it to him. I find that really cool. That's reason number five. And then the last one, reason number six, is in the very place where Jesus died and was buried, there was an explosion of the Christian movement. So the church is starting right in that area. And because the, the proof and the truth of Jesus' resurrection is getting out, getting known, and the church is, I mean, it's growing. It's advancing. And I find that interesting because that growth happened in the face of hostility, hostility opposition, um, and persecution from civil and religious leaders. And where we have proof of that is in Matthew 28, where the guards come to them, uh, the leaders, and they say, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep him out of trouble. So they took the bribe, they took the money, and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So they take the bribe, they take the money, um, the guards, and go tell everybody that somebody stole the body. But the church continues to expand and grow even to this day in the face of all opposition and persecution. It's reason number six. Now, we're going to transition a little bit and jump over to Romans. But before we jump into Romans and see the essential beliefs that Paul talks about, we need to talk about the context of Romans because context is key here. So before looking into Romans, it is important to explain... Um, why it was written, how it was written. And so what Paul's doing here is he's writing to the Jews and Gentiles because there's quarreling among them. They're batting heads. On this side, you have the Gentiles who are going, oh, God's grace, God's grace. I can abuse his grace. I can live this way. But no, they were abusing God's grace. So Paul addresses him. He tells him, you're crazy. It's this way. But then on the other side of it, where we're focused today in Romans 10, he's talking to the Jews. And so the Jews follow this thing called legalism which is there is a level of goodness, or you can earn God's favor if you follow this set of laws and try your hardest. There's levels of goodness of where you stand in your relationship with the Lord based off your own righteousness. And Paul's response to that is, is Christ is the end of the law, which means Christ is the end of legalism. Saying, he's basically telling the Jews in this passage in, in 9 through 11, he's saying, listen, Jesus did this, that, that way we don't have to try to follow the law and try so hard. Jesus did this, and he's proven to them the right thing. And so he's given them the, them the essential beliefs in order to follow Christ. And he's saying, because of Christ, man is no longer in a relationship with God when it's like creditor and debtor. Man no longer has to earn 
God's justice and satisfy God, but he only needs to accept his love. And man is no longer to win God's favor. All you have to do is accept it freely, the mercy and the love that um, is freely offered. And so Romans 10, verse 9, let's do it now that we know the context. It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So a man must say that Jesus is Lord. What this meant in biblical times is that Jesus had superior ranking. A couple weeks ago, we baptized um, Caesar Belcher, and Pastor Clay mentioned uh, in biblical times, they would say Caesar is Lord. And so saying Caesar is Lord is basically saying he has leadership. He's superior in He has authority over my life, lordship over my life. And so in the same way, you're saying Jesus is Lord, and you're given that testimony that Jesus now has the authority over your life, rulership over you, and wherever he leads, you will follow. Uh, and you will be obedient and worship him. And that's exactly what we do here at Alice Drive. When we ask during baptisms, we say, what is your Christian confession? And people say, Jesus is Lord. And the young adults go crazy, stand up clapping, and everybody's smiling and happy because Jesus is Lord, and your, your, your life now takes a different path. You walk a different way. And so you are confessing to the church that Jesus has authority and rulership over your life. You worship him wherever he leads you. Uh, you must also believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so that's important because in the second part of this verse, it's the resurrection. It's saying that the resurrection is actually an essential part of the Christian belief. To believe that not only Jesus lived, but that he does live. Uh, does live. Not only that you have to know about Christ, but you know him yourself. He is living and he is a real presence. And you must believe that not only was he a martyr and died for the cause to defeat the sin in the grave, but he is a victor as well. Verse 10, it says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul is saying here that, um, a man should not only believe in his heart, but confess with his lips. Christianity is a belief plus a confession. I tell my middle schoolers all the time, I carry this saying that I got from North Greenville because they're the best. Um, it says, we say it's a prayer that leads into a path of life. So I tell my middle schoolers all the time, yeah, let, yeah let's pray this prayer, but it's a prayer that leads into a path of life. When you give your life over to Christ, when he has authority and rulership over your life, it causes you to live a different way and causes you to walk on a different path of life than you were before. So it's a prayer that leads into a path of life. I'm gonna steal a little bit from our summer camp speaker when we took our students a couple weeks ago. The pastor mentioned this idea and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very interesting, but he said, here's Sam and here's Sarah. Sam and Sarah live their life 90% the exact same way. 90% of their life looks identical. They were in the decision, Sam and Sarah, to, make a, uh, to choose a college. And they both didn't pray. They didn't ask the Lord for guidance. They just chose a college based off their wants and needs and didn't ask God to be a part of it. Their life, 90%, everything that they did looked the same. But the 10% is Sam called himself a Christian and Sarah calls herself an atheist. The truth is, is that Sam is not really a Christian if he lives his life the exact same way as Sarah. He believes in his own belief, not in Jesus as Lord. 
Sam is Lord over his own life, and Jesus is not Lord of Sam's life. If he were, he would be following that path of life, and his life would look a lot different. The pastor said it in a simpler version that I'm going to steal as well. He said, if you look like a duck, sound like a duck, and act like a duck, but you call yourself a mongoose, then what are you? You're a duck. Just because you call yourself a mongoose doesn't mean you are. And so many followers of Jesus understand this. Uh, and and I, I think here at Alice Drive, it's so important because our mission is we exist to help as many people as possible take that next step towards Jesus Christ. And when you say that prayer, it leads into that path of life. You're always taking a next step, always taking a next step, always, always, always. And here at Alice Drive, we're not we come together in life groups and we come together and we serve each other and we have family field day and we do all these fun things as a community because we walk hand in hand, walk together, taking that next step together, helping each other in your walk with the Lord. It's unique. It's awesome. That's what the church does. We come together and we do that. We help each other take our next steps. It's that path of life and you're always, always, always taking next steps. Verse 11, 12, and 13, I'm going to kind of throw together um, and do them all at one time. But verse 11 says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So first, bringing up that old um, Old Testament scripture, Paul is basically, he's giving them the Mike Tyson to the gut. He's saying, all right, I've done everything I can. This is my final punch, uppercut. Like, I'm giving you the Old Testament scriptures to further prove my point of why this is true. And so the first one he uses is Isaiah 28, 16. And he says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So that idea of shame is feeling of embarrassment or humiliation that arises in relation to the perception of having done something immoral, improper, dishonorable. But the truth is, is it's kind of like a mask on your face when, you're, when you feel the guilt and shame. And, and you have this mask on your face because you have the perception that you've done something wrong. And the truth is, is that you can take that mask off and point to the one who saved you from it. You don't have to feel the shame anymore. You don't have to feel the weight and the consequences of your sin like I am right now in my third service of doing this. You don't have to feel that. You can give it all to him. And so Jesus' resurrection actually allows us to be loved and to know we are loved despite our failures. We're gonna mess up. There's gonna be times where we mess up, but we can point to Christ and say, I'm loved despite my failures. It's what he did, it's not what I did. When we come face to face one day at Judgment Day, we say it's because of the blood of Christ. It's not that I served in the church. It's not that I did a list of things. It's because of Jesus and who he is and what he did for me. And I believe in that. And so secondly, he goes on to Joel 2.32, which says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, context is key here because Paul's saying, Jews and Gentiles, it's for everybody. It's not for each one of you. You're no better than any, any other person here. And that goes down to even our beliefs that I talked about at the beginning. Because we believe something different than somebody else, it causes us to quarrel and fight amongst each other. But the truth is we need to have that gospel mindset and that mission that everybody can come to Jesus. It was for the world. And so we have that mindset that we can come together and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. It's not for one or the other, it's for all. And so after hearing all this, you ask yourself, you know, what does this mean to me? Or how do I apply this to my life? And for the believer in the room today, 
I encourage you to think about this question. I want you to ask yourself, are you living in the joy of the resurrection? Well, what does that mean, the joy of the resurrection? Our belief in the, in the resurrection causes us to live a certain way and to live with joy because we believe that. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he didn't just forgive our sins. He actually bore the weight of all of our sin while he was on the cross. Isaiah 53, 6 says that God laid the iniquity of us all on Jesus, every single one of us. The book bag that you have filled with your weight, the book bag of your neighbor, the book bag of the person down the street, all the weight and the sin in the world from past to present to future was bore on Jesus. Put all, every bit of it was put on him. He bore not only the wrongs committed, but also the consequences of those wrongs. Like we talked about, all the guilt and shame and regret and the problems that arise from sin and the broken relationships that cause it. The most crushing was the separation of his father um, that our sin brought him. And so God, he, had, he experienced that spiritual darkness, what it was like to not live a life with God. And in the same way, that's what it's like with us. He took the sin of the world. He bore the, the weight on his shoulders, and that's the beauty of it. We no longer have to live in the spiritual darkness that we live in, feeling the regret, shame, and guilt that our sin causes us, and we have to bear on our back. It's taken care of. We no longer have to deal with that. Jesus bore the weight. He bore our sin. He, he's taken care of it. The resurrection is proof of our salvation. He defeated the sin in the grave. He defeated all the sin that eats us alive at times. And before we came to Christ, we felt that. But also to the believer in the room today, there's times where, ooh, you, why do you want to pick up the bag? Why do you feel shame and guilt due to your sin and what you've done in your life? Why do you even think about picking back up the bag? Christ has already done that. The gospel and the gospel alone is, done, is enough. If you remind yourself of that every day, there's no shame. Jesus has done it. He's taken care of it. Lay it down. Give it all to him. Lay it at his feet. It's proof of our salvation. And are you living in that joy? Are you living in the joy? To the non-Christian in the room, why would you want to carry that? Why would you want that crushing weight on your shoulders? You go day in and day out and you feel guilt, shame, regret for what you've done. But why? Why? You can give it to somebody who lived a perfect life and that was there to defeat that, defeat sin. But I want to encourage you before you leave, you're on the right side of history. Not because of anything you've ever done or not because of anything you'll ever do, but you're on the right side of history because of his resurrection. I want to paint a picture for us so you can understand more of what I'm saying. It's kind of like the final months of World War II. On June 6, 1944, it was called D-Day. The Allied troops stormed the northern coast of France to um, liberate Europe from Nazi tyranny. Once those uh, soldiers had heroically and ferociously taken that beachhead, they started going inland, one blood-soaked mile after another. The fight dragged on until May 8, 1945 which is V-Day, nearly a year later when the German soldiers finally surrendered. The fight dragged on for 11 months until the Germans finally surrendered. But the war had been won 11 months before when the Germans couldn't stop the Allied landings on D-Day. The fight drags on, but the war had already been won before. In the same way, Christians, that's, that's 
our testimony. It's the idea of this truth that we're not fighting for victory. We don't have to do anything. We can't fight for victory. It's already been done. He's already done it. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting in victory. We've given it all to him. There's a daily fight between our sin and our life and our flesh, and we're fighting that daily, but the war's already been won. Jesus won the decisive battle for this whole world by his death and resurrection 2,000 years ago. His death looked like defeat, but on the third day, he came right, roaring up like a lion, lion with new life forever. Because of him, we are on the winning side. He will never leave us or forsake us. He won, and that's the sweet reminder of living in that joy of the resurrection. Because of Jesus, we now have eternal life. We can now be friends with God, and we are invited into his presence. Are you living in that joy? Are you living in the joy of the resurrection? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, and uh, we just ask that, you give us the strength to hear the message today and to lay down, lay it all down at your feet. A crown of thorns turned into a crown of glory and we bow at your feet and give you everything. It's for everyone. The ground is level at the cross. It's for all of us. All we have to do is take it and give it all to you and trust in you and believe in you because you won the decisive battle thousands of years ago. We give it all to you. If there's anybody on that line, Lord, I pray that they, they give it all to you and understand that there is joy in the belief of the resurrection. Amen.